0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 5th. It's 9 a.m. Pacific time in California, and um, we are talking today about our current age of technology and turmoil things seem to be particularly uh, turbulent in early 2021 although i don't think it's any less turbulent than 2020 when you look at the news uh the uh, the, the the newspaper of record uh today's news is that facebook now is upholding the social media Ban on Donald Trump, the former president of the United States. Lots of turbulence and technology there. Um, The COVID story goes on. More and more stories about the vaccine. Lots of technology and turmoil there too. When it comes to the environment, everything is full of technology and turmoil. According to the New York Times, many of us here consider the paper of record, climate change is not a subjective thing. It's actually a fact. Lots of technology and turmoil. There's even turmoil amongst the technologists themselves. Bill Gates, Mr. Rational Thinker himself, is getting divorced, apparently creating the world's second wealthiest woman. So even in our age of technology and turmoil, the technologists are in turmoil. Um, And of course, the background to this on the horizon is artificial intelligence. Apparently, we're being told that uh, machines, artificial intelligent machines, smart machines, the thing that will arrive us, compete us, maybe make us even footnotes to history, must learn to find common ground. They must be cooperative. So what better time in our age of technology and turmoil to talk about what my authors today describe as human advantage in this age. They have a new book out called Framers. Uh, This is a book written by three individuals. I'm not quite sure how three people actually combine on a book. I think they must have been very cooperative or perhaps they're AIs in secret. Um, But one of them, at least, has been on my show many times before. He's an old friend, Kenneth Kukier. And one of them, uh, Francis de Vericourt is a, is, is a, is a newcomer to uh, a rookie to, uh, keen on. the third member of this, uh, Trinity of authors, Victor Mayer Schoenberger, the Viennese, uh, behavioral economist, I think. I don't know if that's the fair way of describing him. I know he's Viennese, of uh, Viennese, not Vietnamese. Uh, he's not available. So we have Ken and Francis on, 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 uh, the show today. Uh, That's enough talk. Let's get the guys involved. Um, uh, Ken and Francis, welcome. Uh, I want to make uh, this a three-screen thing just for the moment. But Francis, perhaps we might begin with you. Um, Sure. You... uh, you are as i said the co-author of this new book of this new book framers human advantage in an age of technology and turmoil i throw out some examples of the technology and turmoil of our current age what is this book about who and what are framers
1: well framers are us as our human being and this is our ability to representation of the world and and make decisions with not a lot of data and you, you mentioned turmoil you mentioned global warming you mentioned even COVID I think what is important to remember is that our ability to know that those phenomena are real they are really real There is such a thing as global warming we are aware of them because we are framer and I'm only going to take a quick example global warming, if you really want to prove that there's such a thing as global warming, you need an Earth without human. You need to compare what would have happened without us on Earth. And obviously, this is impossible to measure. We don't have the data of the world without us. We won't be there to observe it. So the only way we can infer that we are creating this awful global warming is using framing counterfactuals, and his amazing powerful ability to frame problems.
0: Let's step back for a moment before I bring in Ken, uh, Francis. I looked up the word framer uh, in my Google dictionary. Uh, A couple of definitions. A person who shapes or creates a concept, plan, or system. And perhaps a a definition most people will be more familiar with. A person who makes frames for paintings or photographs. in terms of your it. definition which of these nouns works more the person who shapes or creates a concept plan or system or a framer of paintings or photographs
1: you, you know what both applies because the idea the metaphor of a frame like the one you built works very well the way a frame works is to highlight some informations you have in your context that's what a frame does it just guide what you observe, how to look at things. So what, when we're talking about frames, we're talking about yeah. cognitive tools, so abstract representation, but they, they work exactly the same way. Why they are powerful is because they help you focus on the right thing and ignore things that are not very useful for your, for your thinking. I can give you briefly one example. When you try to look, you, you're in San Francisco, so you, you let's say you come to Berlin, you don't know Berlin, where I live, um you try to find your way around you're going to use google map most likely you're not going to use google earth
0: yeah. just as but i google- use uh, g- sorry just as yeah, i go use uh, google uh, google dictionary for uh, defining friends for instance
1: for instance but you're not google- using google earth because google earth has too much information is google earth is much richer than google map you're using google map because it really simplified things for you and pinpoint the most important information and then using that you can start to plan and to project yourself the different pathways you may want to use to reach my home where we can have a good wine etc so the key point is that the frame that you built helps you focus your attention and this is exactly how the conceptual frame if you want the mental model works it simplifies in a very specific way the world for you that enables you to act on it
0: Focus, focus, focus. Let's mm-hmm. focus now on Ken, an old friend. Has been on the show several times before. Many of you will be familiar with Ken because he is the co-author of the best-selling book Big Data, which, in my view, is still the best book um, actually on big data and the AI revolution. His co-author back then was Victor meyer schoenberger one of the uh, the, the uh, one of the three authors, the co-authors of Framers. Um, Ken is this new book framer framers is it in a sense um the next step after big data how are these two books connected
2: wow what a good question uh, so hey thank you thanks for having me it's great to see you again sadly not face to face but through the through the medium of uh, the net and the browser uh you're absolutely right the book the books are connected it doesn't seem like it's obvious but you have put your finger on something. When, when Victor and I wrote the book, Big Data, we emphasized the information and the data. In fact, we deliberately said that the world has, you know, has has long spoken about the promise of IT, but it is time for us to change the gaze from the T, the technology, the hardware, to the I, to the information part itself. And so we focused on the data and what the data could do. And we minimized, things that we thought were sort of obvious, such as the model that you put the data into and everyone in the AI field. And of course, let me stop and say, the term big data is basically a shorthand for machine learning. So we were really talking about the AI revolution machine learning and also data analytics for that matter. But data analytics is just souped up statistics and that still applies, it's still about the data. But whether it's statistics or whether it's machine learning, you rely on a model, fine. Before you have a model, however, physical sort of instantiation of the model, statistical model, you have a mental model. That's the important bit. What is a mental model? It is a frame. That's the term of art in cognitive sciences, among other disciplines in the social sciences. When you have a frame, a cognitive frame, it is, allows you to focus on certain things and de-emphasize other things. As Francis had said, when you try to get around the city of Berlin, you don't rely on Google Earth, too much information, you rely on Google Maps. That actually excludes information so that it's relevant to you at a given time. When we talked about big data, we got criticized as being the great cheerleaders of the data and also our point that you should trust correlations and not causation. Sure, and I think that's absolutely true. But we got so, but people, we were so misunderstood that we realized we needed to say more about this. We also got very alarmed by the way in which people were embracing the big data revolution to such a degree that they were using it in the wrong ways for the wrong purposes with the wrong values at heart, or they were not using it at all, saying it didn't matter and rejecting the whole project of rationality. We disliked both, the rationalists and the emotionalists. So what we wrote about was saying that actually there's this human capability that transcends the data that transcends both our base natures and our our grunts and of that populist sort of relish in and transcends the hyper rationalists and the people who believe that they want to give up on the human project and and trust algorithms instead we should double down on what humans do and do well already and that is generate mental models or representations or frames we need to become better
0: framers we need to become better framers uh i hope you don't die soon ken but if, if when you die perhaps that will be put on your grave um francis uh yes uh, that was a nice comment wasn't it i, I, I love was great. It. it it just popped out <laughs> i didn't mean that really um francis uh you join this this team this kukie uh Maya Schoenberger team, what did you bring to the table? What, why did you get involved? And how do you write a book? How do three sort of distinguished journalist academics, how do they combine to, to write a book? Is that an act of framing in itself?
1: Well, that so there are many dimensions to, to your question. So first, I think this time, this is uh, to some extent Ken who joined the team, because um Victor came to me and he wanted to write something about decision-making in the age of artificial intelligence. That's how it, it started. And uh, and because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a professor of management science, I'm, I'm doing research on decision-making and I've been talking, Victor is an old friend. So I've been talking about decision-making for ages with him. So he came to me, but it happened that independently of us, Ken had similar ideas. And then, you know, you, you may ask Victor or Ken how they realized they had the same ideas. This is when Victor said to me, well, I want Ken on board. And I said, sure, you know, I had the two great authors who wrote big data. Yes, let's bring uh, bring a team. Um, sorry, Ken on the team. And that's how it started. And you, you pointed out something very, very important in like we are really coming from different paradigm, we are coming with different frames. I, I am I am uh, these, you know geeks, maybe nerdy professor in decision science doing uh, math and, and psychology and that kind of stuff. And then you have Ken, who is uh, much more versatile and he's um, a journalist, knows the world much better than I do. And then you have Victor, who is doing more regulations uh, coming from his law background. And we are three different nationalities. So you have here at work, what a uh, plurality of frames can do. And yes, you know, there they have been frictions altogether but the book is really written with uh, like six hands, uh, like three hands or six. Uh, so it's really the combination of these um, melting pots that produce, I think, a, a great book. So, so uh, you know, to answer your questions, I'm bringing really the decision science perspective. But in the end, the product is the outcome of the three of us, the interactions with the three of us.
0: Uh, Ken, I thought of you this morning when I was looking at this headline in The Washington Post. It's a photo um, of the Bidens and the Carters, and it's elicited quite a lot of controversy because it makes the Bidens look like giants or the the Carters look like pygmies. Um, And and some people have suggested an ideological reason. Others have have looked at the very framing of the photograph. I thought of you for two reasons. Firstly, um, Carter, a much younger Carter, is an example of a framer in your book. But, of course, as a photograph, it also talks about how easy it is to frame perspectives. What does this photograph tell you?
2: That photograph is absolutely ingenious. And when I saw it this morning, I fell out of my chair in guffaws that, and, uh, and wry smiles of how some, someone in the White House today in the communications team is really feeling very badly. Um, it is... you. you it 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 couldn't be worse. It actually looks so. <laughs> well, it could be it dangerous. could be
0: worse because it could be reversed, and the Bidens might look like pygmies, right?
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, well, actually, the one thing we do, do know about American politics starting in 2016 is it can always be worse, far worse than we ever imagined. So yes, that's right. Um, nevertheless, there's there's people who are sort of right now <laughs> feeling really quite uh, quite small of, of by themselves. So what's going on Was that a
0: joke, feeling small?
2: It wasn't, but I'm sure it was some some sort of of Freudian sense that it's there, Um, uh, it's it's in the air. What's happening there? Well, of course, there was a wide angle lens that did a terrible job of distorting things. And if you think about frames and what they do for us, they distort things, but in a positive way. What do I mean by that? Is that um, just as when we have, say, um, the constitution, Uh, we have a frame in which we want to focus on certain elements, say uh, whether we want to have a bicameral legislature or not. We have to make these decisions and we have to make these choices. By having a frame, we can exclude information as well as focus on other certain information that we do want to put our attention to. That is the purpose of why we apply this cognitive feature. If we didn't have a frame, the whole world, all of our sensations and experiences would be a jumble of incohate experiences. That wouldn't help us. So instead, what we do is we use frames to have a ability to focus on the things that are essential. Okay, this basic aspect of cognition can be transformed into a tool that we can use to increase the option space around us. We can use it to increase the alternatives that we see and therefore we can choose and make better decisions and therefore get better outcomes. That's what's key. When you have a frame and you choose from one frame to another, you broaden or improve your alternatives. If you're in a world of trying to make a decision and you're trying to actually do it by choosing between different things you've already lost because unless those alternatives are the the best ones for you, choosing among meager alternatives isn't going to help you. Instead, having a mental model that combines all the features of a mental model, we can talk about them, which is causality, counterfactuals and constraints, we're then able to choose better, have better outcomes. And unless we do that, all of the problems that you saw, that you talked about, Andrew, at the very outset of the show, such as climate change, you know, such as you know, politics gone awry, such as relationships that sadly fail, we're going to be bedeviled by it. And so the only way we can actually respond to our challenges is through better framing. Uh,
0: and uh, the second part of the question, uh, Ken, was about a much younger, I, I forgot to add a, a photo of a much yeah. younger and virile or larger Jimmy Carter, but yeah. there is an anecdote about Carter as a framer in the book. And I think the book which I really enjoyed, by the way, congratulations to all three of you, and particularly the two of you on the show, is really brought to light, not by the theory, but by the, the practice of example. So uh, how, how is uh, Jimmy Carter yeah. a framer, Ken?
2: Yeah, he is in many ways, but I'll just focus on the element in the, in the, in the book in which a young James Carter, a lieutenant in the, the U.S. Navy and a nuclear scientist, a Ph.D., if we all remember our American history, is called with his team to upstate New York, uh, where there has been just across the border in Canada, a nuclear meltdown of a small reactor. And the year is in the 1950s. And what's happened is a reactor that's part of the, working for the Department of Energy for America's nuclear weapons program has melted down. And so they need a team And the team has to be quiet, but they have to do something about nuclear science. And so they choose the team that are from the nuclear sub-program to come in. And so what he has to do is he has to build a mental model of what they need to do. To go and descend and clean up a nuclear reactor that's melted down, you have to rappel down on ropes, and then you actually have to work, but only for about three minutes at a time, in complete darkness. So you have to find out, well, what's the problem? Then you have to find out, well, what's the how do you fix the problem? And you have to get out really quickly. So what he does is they build actually a physical model, because you can't keep it all into your head. They create an exact replica of the nuclear uh, containment vessel that they have to go into. And they work on it with, so they know exactly what tools they need, what they need to do, groping is, groping in effect, blindfolded to see how they would actually respond there. And then they'd go and perform the function for three minutes at a time on a daily basis come back out, go back to the model a couple of a couple miles away in a tennis court, and then change it there so every time they can rehearse it again and again and again. Now, this rehearsal is really important because you instantiated the mental model in a physical model. You simulated it. But the key thing is we don't actually have to just rely on the physical model. By rehearsing things mentally, which is an incredible cognitive skill, we get better and better and better. So that, of course, is how high performance athletes train a ski jumper will jump down is, the, is road this a,
0: the the gladwellian element to the book
2: um no i think it's more of the kukian de Vericorian, victor <laughs> Mayer schoenbergerian <laughs> element of the book
0: actually but but if gladwell yeah, wants right, to right, borrow right, our very technique, very nice response ken Let, let's move on to some other examples um uh, uh francis um Can we talk a little bit about uh, the first example in the book? A a woman, Mm. everyone will, of course, heard of Jimmy Carter or even James Carter. Most of our viewers and listeners won't be familiar with a woman called Regina Barzillet. You open with this woman and you say that she is the, I guess, the quintessential example of a a successful framer. What is it about Barzillet that justifies her inclusion as such a prominent figure in your book?
1: I mean we we wanted to start it with an example that give answer on the surface make you believe that it's all about the machine the the power of ai and it's true this story is very impressive because it's tackling one of the most challenge uh, that humanity is going to face that is we have a huge problem with antibiotics or antibiotics are developing uh or germs i developing uh, resistance to antibiotics, and in 10 years, 20 years, there will be about 10 millions of people every year dying from um, disease because of the resistance of these antibiotics. And for the last 30 years, humanity has tried to find new ways of coming up with new antibiotics and fail and fail and fail. And here come a young woman and decided to use a machine to help her figure out with with Team, obviously, but to help her figure out, can we find a new antibiotics And she applied machine learning techniques and came up with a new one that is extremely powerful. It's called Halicin because it's coming from Hal, you know, the Space Odyssey movie. There's always his nasty AI uh, character in those uh, sci fi movies. So Hal is a character which is a machine that destroys humanity. So here, halicin might be the next antibiotic that is going to save humanity. And so that's why we wanted to start with this example, where when you look at it on the surface, this is the machine who did all the work. But the truth is that before the machine kicks in, her team and herself had to reframe the problem. And instead of um, going quickly, instead of looking at the structure of an antibiotics, of the molecules, she focused, she changed focus. She focused on the functions. What does the machine do the the uh, antibiotic do and using that reframing start to train the algorithm and what is very very interesting is that they force the machine they constrain the machine so they they impose a frame on the machine they constrain of the machine to look for mechanisms that has never been seen before so that the machine look at, a lot a lot a lot a lot at a lot a lot, a lot of molecules but focuses on new mechanisms. If the mechanisms is known, I forget it. I move to the next one again and again. So we open the book with an example for a huge problem. We believe it's done by a machine, but behind it, there's a human being here at MIT who reframed the problem so that then the machine can take over. That's why we started with her. And she's a quite impressive woman.
0: Uh, There are a lot of impressive women in the book. Uh, Another one, a more mainstream figure that everyone will have heard of, is uh, Alyssa Milano. She is the woman, of course, who started the conversation about Me Too with this uh, famous tweet. Um, Why is she a framer, Ken? So
2: what happened there is that... uh Prior to Melissa Milano's infamous tweet, and of course it wasn't just Alyssa Milano, it was all the women who responded to it that deserve credit here. And even before Alyssa Milano, the the term Me Too was a movement by Tanya Burke. So it had been in the air, so it wasn't, although Alyssa Milano is a very nice um, sort of centerpiece with which to understand this issue, I wanna point out there's a lot of credit that goes around to lots of great women who stood up to sexual assault. Prior to that point, though, sexual assault and sexual harassment was often something that was kept silent and was actually seen by many women, sadly, as, as a mark of shame. And it wasn't something that was to be vocalized, but hushed. Women talked about it all the time to each other, to, intimately to their, to their, their friends and their, to their husbands and to their partners but it wasn't something that one went public with. It wasn't actually a source of empowerment in a weird way from silence to a sort of strength, but that is what happened. That was, it took something that was in the shadows and by throwing a spotlight on it, it actually empowered women to point out men. Sometimes it was just simply saying me too and not saying more, sometimes it was saying me too and this is where I felt, this this is who abused me. But going from silence to strength, was what we wanted to uh, focus on, and how it in effect reframed this very noxious uh, situation that all women have been facing, and hopefully it's going to reform that situation. So we wanted, we were, it was important that we identified heroes, but the heroes here are not just these singular people like Alyssa Milano, who reframe the situations, because we're not in a universe in which we have to point to these grand people like the Einsteins and the Milanos who do these things, and we are just simply objects to their greatness. Not at all. The whole point is that every one of us, all of us, are good framers and reframers. We do it all the time, but with practice, we can get better at it. And by getting, with training, I should say, we should get better at it. And by getting better at it, we can improve our own lives, improve our communities, improve our work, improve the world.
0: Uh, I'm yeah, I'm always a little dubious, Ken, of this stuff that we can do good and be rational and everything will end happily ever after. Uh, you cite Sarah Cooper as a framer, and of course, she brilliantly framed Donald Trump. But isn't Trump himself a framer, a very successful one? Absolutely,
2: Trump might actually be better than all the others, Um, even better than
0: Sarah Cooper,
2: (laughs) yeah because Sarah Cooper parodies Trump and Trump is the president of the United States. So if you have to say who is gonna be better at framing, let's give it to Trump. Um, Being a framer doesn't mean you're virtuous. It simply means that you can understand the contours of the world that you're seeing, and you can make adjustments to those ingredients or features of, of this mental model, whether it's the causal mechanism, whether it is the counterfactuals, the what if questions that you're asking yourself of how the world could be, and whether it's the constraints that you impose, whether you modify them, loosening some and strengthening and tightening others. Donald Trump was extraordinary. Uh, and I should say terrorists are framers and you know, saints are framers. So. Everyone, in effect, is a framer because you wouldn't be able to actually live in this world were you not able to frame situations and focus on certain things and not others. Uh, similar to at the cocktail party, when someone's talking, you can pick out a you know, when someone's the conversation is talking to you, but not to someone else. Unless you're eavesdropping, you pick out someone else's conversation and ignore the one the person who's talking to you. So Donald Trump, of course, is, is a framer par excellence. What did he do? I mean, he looked at American politics. And keep in mind, he ran for the presidency, or at least floated the idea of running for the presidency for decades prior to actually 2016, right? He was looking for messages that worked. He was looking for the buttons that he would push of how to get himself out there, whether it was genuinely to win office or not is is actually, historians will answer. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that this really was about trying to boost his profile for for contracts that he was negotiating for television shows be that as it may he successfully understood that he had, he could position himself he could see a new reality that others couldn't see particularly not the, the the media and i just remember people from the red states coming to me and whispering in my ear in 2016 early 2016 you guys have a problem you east coast media elites you have no idea what's happening in the heartland and a man from iowa retired doctor and they were right yeah
0: francis um ken said that we are all essentially framers we have to be that's what being human is um cam to be a successful framer do you have to be correct one of the examples you have in the book which i was curious about is ben Bernanke, who uh, correct me if i'm wrong you seem to present as someone who successfully framed the uh, the late, uh, the 2008 financial meltdown, essentially f- saving the financial system. There's a lot of debate about that. Some people, including the New York Times, uh, Benjamin Applebaum, uh, a few years ago in the Times, suggested that that the Feds and, and, and Bernanke misread the situation. So what's the relationship between framing the truth, if you like, and just simply dealing with a situation which in 2008 was a house on fire and out of control and, and forcing you to do something.
2: You know, Andrew, before we ask Francis to answer, I have a feeling
1: that you, since there are three authors, that you've actually asked the
0: very one, it, one, of the,
1: one, of the few instances I'm, where you asked the I'm question. No, I can, I'm happy to jump in, but can yeah, I, it's close to your heart, so exactly. go for it. Yeah. Go for it. You yeah. love that example, so go for it. Okay, well, Ken, as I a, was ready to Ken shoot is being,
0: P- Ken is framing the question in a greedy way, but I'm gonna give it back to him. And Francis, we're gonna end with you. Go on. I'm fine, him. I'm fine, I'm fine. You, you love will that go to example. Francis.
2: We'll give the two. But but Andrew, keen on, I work at a place called The Economist. How could that not be <laughs> close to my heart? That's an right. own goal, as we say in Britain. Okay, so what did, what did he do? Right, it begins the chapter on causality, and the reason why is that one of the ingredients of the frame is causality, and the the issue is that for years e- economists understood that the that the economy, such as the, the concept uh, was created, and it's actually a relatively modern concept, uh, responds to causal connections and, and causal features. You can pull a lever and get some outcome. You can push a button and get another outcome. So it depends on the mental model that you have. And in 2008, at the outset of the financial crisis, actually in 2007, when it was first bubbling along, in 2008, when you had a force and function with Lehman Brothers and then AIG, there were many people who said, and rightly so, look at these losses, this is nothing. You know, the global financial, you know, global financial system, and particularly just Wall Street, deals with trillions of dollars of transactions a day. So what's a couple hundred billion dollars? These, just these firms going under means nothing. Right? But Bernanke, his his framing was different. He understood that a small trouble on Wall Street will mean huge repercussions on Main Street if you lose confidence, and he had that frame because he was a student, an expert in one niche area of economics. It was the Great Depression, and he studied how the Fed and the Fed's policy was a cause of the crisis of the Great Depression. It didn't actually, it actually did everything wrong. It allowed banks to go under, particularly small lenders. It, it, it constricted capital rather than opened up the floodgates to capital. Everything it did was the inverse of what you wanted. So his mental model he imposed, and it succeeded. The fact that today, in 2021, we are paying with U.S. dollars and greenbacks for things and living our lives and not living with sticks and stones and foraging for our food is a credit to the fact that he was right
0: can well let's go I back comment? to uh, 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 uh francis did you want to yes. add something to that after ken so selfishly seized the no. uh seized the microphone
1: no 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 it's not selfish i mean i know i know he loved that story so so i'm glad he he could uh indulge himself uh taking on that one but but they were they were another dimensions to your question you talk about truth and, and so that, that's a very, very important point. The, the, the main point is very often, you know the truth after the fact. Like, no, it's easy to, in hindsight, look at all what happened, now to say what could have happened then. But what makes decisions difficult and the problems we are facing difficult is we don't know. Like we, we are in situations where there's a lot of ambiguity, and uncertainty, and our best hope is to frame the problem the right way, so that it determines a set of alternatives that are potentially successful. So what makes a difficult decision is precisely we don't know the truth.
0: But Francis, isn't the truth always political? Uh, Stephen Colbert, of course, famously came up with his joke of a phrase, truthiness, but truthiness remains all around us. Another of the headlines today is that the... Some of the top republicans are trying to oust lynn cheney from the house of representative leadership because she questions donald trump's version of the 2020 election she claims that it's a lie and donald trump's claiming that the the election itself was a big lie um in in the last part of your book you and i found this particularly interesting you you bring up Hannah Arendt and a, and a less well-known but equally important uh, European intellectual emigre to America, Jewish, uh, Jewish, Ju- not Jewish, Judish Schlar, who was another political uh, philosopher at Harvard. How can Arendt and Schlar help us through this minefield of truthiness?
1: Well, as a as a warning, in many ways, I'm you know. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, co- to comment on U.S. politics. Um, we, uh, Ken had a lot of praise for Trump, at least as a framer. I know where his uh, views stand. But Trump as a framer, and this, that the connection with Harant with is, uh, is very, very, very dangerous, except especially with the examples you gave uh, with what is going on right now. What he's doing is imposing only one frame on the Republican Party. There's only one frame. There's no other possibilities to bring a different perspective. There's much more frictions in the Democratic Party, but it's a good thing, the friction is healthy because it means there are different ways of framing the same political issues. So the only thing I can say, I do not know where the truth lies, that I don't know, but what I'm sure of, and this is what the story with Haran tells us, what I'm sure um, uh, of is that imposing only one frame on a problem is very, very dangerous because it's not flexible. If, if the world changes, your frame may not work anymore. And yes, well, I'll yeah, so, so talk a little bit yeah, about
0: Shla, because she is described as the theorist of belonging. She is becoming, I think, an increasingly important thinker in our age of identity. Are you suggesting in your argument about framing and framers that we need multiple identities, and that if we fall into being this or that, a man or a woman, a a, a Jew or a Christian, a a black or a white, we are falling into a trap?
1: I I think, you know, if you, you will always have an identity, you know, whether, whether your identity may be, well, I don't want to define me as a man and a woman, that's an identity in itself. But what is important is that in society, there are women, there are men, and there are people who feel in between. So we need that diversity of frames representation. We need a large, society needs a large repertoire of ways of representing the world. If we want to have the hope, to find a good solution because there is no one perfect frame that will solve all your problems for you. So having your own identity is important and it doesn't have to be male, it doesn't have to be female, it doesn't have to be black, white, it can be whatever you want. But what is important is to have a society that allows those different frames to coexist. And when you look at what's going on in the Republican Party, if you just take that as a mini society, it's very scary because this is the opposite that is going on. It's like you you get kicked out so easily for just bringing your own slightly different views. And this is the story of Arendt in World War II that she saw that coming. She saw that imposing a unique frame to society is extremely dangerous, not only for certain individuals, but for the whole species as a whole.
0: Ken, the subtitle of the book is uh, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. I think it implies that we're living in a unique age of technology and turmoil. We had uh, the, 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 shall we call him, the, the skeptical uh, Scottish-American historian, Niall Ferguson on the show earlier this week He has a new book out, Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe, in which he suggests that this is not a new theme. Is there anything unique about the early 21st century in terms of the challenge and opportunity for framers?
2: Yeah, there is something unique. I think the people who are the non-uniquists aren't wrong, but they do need to expand their, their conceptions. They're not wrong because I think every uh, generation uh, sees the world as at a pivotal moment. Maybe every generation is right about that, but they do see it as there's these calamitous challenges that need to be addressed. Again, they're probably right. One of the differences now that at least feels different is that, uh, but I think is genuinely different, is the fact that the consequences that we have are existential. You couldn't really say that in Rome. It was hard to sort of destroy the planet. And you could say that during the with nuclear weapons uh, at the at the stroke of a finger, uh, because of military conflict. And so therefore you had strong command and control systems to prevent that from happening. So far we have, but I stress so far, just terrifies should terrify us more than it does. However, with with things like climate change or climate change or even with antimicrobial resistance. The pathologies of our way of life, of all of our collective actions, are have crept up to the degree which it threatens us now. So what will respond to it is we have to change our thinking in order to change our actions. That's what Framers is about. And so why it's so important now is we've got these technologies and artificial intelligence, which seems to offer so much promise and indeed does to solve lots of our problems and actually to do great things for us, cannot do everything for us because it cannot frame, it can't do causality it can't do counterfactuals it can't do meaningful constraints likewise we're at a time of creeping authoritarianism and and unique in sort of this sort of single frame of truth as well as populism that is sort of rejecting the rational project and there too we need to vaunt framing as a antidote to that tendency as well so between the technology of ai which can't frame and the populists and authoritarians that give up on framing as well We want to vaunt this human capability. And if we train ourselves to get better at it, we can actually solve our problems that we haven't solved before.
0: And if we don't, we will perish. Oh, my God. We had Sherry Turkle on the show, who you know all too well. Her new book is called The Empathy Diaries. Um, Is empathy central in the book? Final question, Ken, and perhaps, Francis, you could jump in too. Because the one thing, of course, that smart machines don't seem to be able to do is, is be empathetic. Is that what uh, our challenge and opportunity as humans is when it comes to framing to add empathy, so that we can outcompete uh, machines?
2: I would say no. I'd love to hear what Francis has to say, but I would say no. I,
0: I, um, yeah. yeah, let, let, let Ken go, to... then Francis will bring you in.
1: Well, yeah. this is this is usually what what people say about AI. Oh, at least humans have emotion empathy and all that is correct no you need to be careful ai can start reading emotions and you know they have also little robot they use in japan for elderly people so they don't feel alone so but the claim we are making and no 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 the real difference is empathy is important i'm not i'm not uh, claiming otherwise but the real difference and where we can bring the extra miles is machine do not frame Machine cannot create their own representation about the world. Machine cannot imagine alternative realities that help us know there is such a thing as global warming that help help us uncover new alternative and new ways of doing things. So I would maintain that really, really, and that's the whole book is about that is our advantage is our ability to frame. A machine cannot frame.
0: Uh, Ken, final word on this. You seem to perhaps disagree on this.
1: No, um,
2: I I want to point out that uh, we didn't actually go there. Uh, I think empathy is a nice virtue. It's very pleasant. It's probably something that humans, only humans can do. It's a nice virtue to think that we can sort of put ourselves into someone else's shoes and therefore have this emotional response to it. But what we were, what ultimately we tried to do is redefine liberalism through the lens of cognitive science to say that these, that, that, We need to practice tolerance and pluralism and respect and diversity for people's mental models in the world in order to live in this world. And if we don't do this, we will not address our problems.
0: Well, there you have it. Uh, A wonderful new book by uh, three of my favorite writers. Only two of them are on the show, Ken Kukier and Francis de Vericourt. Victor will have to come on another time uh framers human advantage in an age of technology and turmoil i want to thank both of you one uh, ken uh, broadcasting from london uh francis from berlin me from san francisco i'll have to have you back on the show again to talk Happy about to. jimmy carter Alyssa milano and Judith sklar it's unusual to have such a far-ranging competition uh, conversation thank you both so much
2: thank, thank you, you very much. much great to be here